So welcome to the ODD podcast. I'm delighted to welcome you today. Uh, with me, I've got uh, a very good friend of mine, um, Dr. Todd, who's here to talk to us a bit about his experience and things he's going. So welcome, Todd, to the podcast. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Excellent. Excellent. As you might hear, um, Todd is uh, from the USA. So inter- we're, we're stretching into international fields now, which is brilliant. Um, so Todd, um, just to get us going, I'd be delighted if you just give us a kind of a um, uh, tour through your career to date, sort of giving us a bit of an example, but just so people with the listeners can sort of uh, understand your journey and where you've been to and, and what you've been up to so far. So would that be okay? That, that's fine. Let me begin with my work as a claims adjuster. Somehow I always start there, but after <laughs> a couple of years, a couple of years after graduating from university and after making a small independent film, which we, my friend and I financed through our own, on our own, uh, it meant that there was quite a sizable debt we had to pay back. So I needed to get a full-time professional job. And through the help of my dad, who was panel counsel on one of the large insurance companies, he was able to get me into basically on the interview list mm-hmm. and went through five interviews and worked for this insurance company for about a year. And then uh, as circumstances had, I moved to a different part of the United States, but remained in insurance since I had experience with a very reputable company. And that that work was very instructive and very soul-destroying at the same time. And I think the reason why I think about claims adjusting is because I did get some very good skills, transferable skills from it in terms of analysis and negotiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the one thing that I will never forget is one moment sitting in my cubicle thinking, if I ever return to academia, I'm going to do a PhD on mm-hmm. meaningful work. And then it was uh, several years later that I took up the opportunity to return to England and go back to the University of Kent, where I spent a year abroad as an undergraduate and basically did a PhD in the philosophy of work. And from that point on, I went, I slowly tried to get myself into a professional academic career, which was very difficult at the time. It's it's much more difficult now, given the certain economic and um, political constraints going on in the UK, but it was certainly challenging. And I was very lucky to get two permanent appointments at at one point. So that was a, a very great experience. And I continued doing research in the philosophy of meaningful work as well as a bit of classical economic theory and how it relates to something called land value or land value taxation. Wow. So just can I just pull you back? Because that's fascinating. So let's just pull. So what was your first degree in? What did you do your degree in to start with? I did a English liter or an English literature degree at the University of California, Berkeley, which at the time was the premier, had the premier English department in the United States which was good for many reasons. Obviously, the reputation and Berkeley or Cal, as the students like to call it, uh, really pride themselves on it for better or for worse. So you can imagine sort of American academic snobbery coming in at this point, which is, is can be very ugly. I didn't fit into that, but I was doing the. You know, I was I was happy to be a part of the program, and I wanted to study poetry most of all for a lot of different reasons. One is if you did a regular prose, if you did a regular degree in terms of just looking at written works, prose mostly, or novels, you had an insane reading load where I remember there was the American novel and you had to read Moby Dick in about a week, a week and a half. And I thought, there's no no way I can do that, even if I had nothing else to do in my life. So um, there was that constraint, but also I just love poetry because it, of, of its excision, uh, concision economy and obviously its creativity. And I was lucky to study under the soon-to-be American poet laureate, Bob Haas, who was a fantastic lecturer, and he basically would just tell stories about different poets as we studied their poetry, and then he would do a reading of the poetry, and he would talk a little bit about the academic stuff, the symbolism, the history, but mostly it was anecdotes and listening to him read poetry, and it was fantastic, and he also interacted with the students, so it wasn't like he was a celebrity and you couldn't talk to him. He was very much around and you would catch him at the pub or at the bar and you could just go up to him. And he remembered me for some reason. I never thought he, you know, I didn't say much in class, but for some reason he remembered me. And I wrote, I corresponded with him for a little bit, uh, maybe one or two years when I was an undergraduate. And that was always memorable and always stuck with me. Oh, fantastic. I mean, that, that kind of, it's just what was really fascinating for me is that people who end up in one sphere, they, they take things from somewhere else. So poetry, you know, with the, 
poetry is one of those uh, arts that can move continents you know it can you know um shape civilization sometimes can't it in poetry so so you did your did your did your poetry uh, at the at the university and then you went and you, you said you went and did a film after that yes so i had a very good friend uh late friend he passed away uh now i guess it's several years ago it feels like only a few years ago but i knew him through rock climbing and uh in santa he lived in santa barbara and he was sort of the center of rock climbing in santa barbara which doesn't have a lot of rock climbing but because of our efforts we developed as much of the santa barbara climbing as we could there there was already climbing there there was already already a tradition there but we developed a lot of what's called bouldering and the sand local sandstone um mm. in the mountains and the sandstone area and so he he was he was fantastic because it, he was a it was a key moment in my life i grew up in southern california and uh, obviously your listeners can't see me but i'm chinese japanese american and i grew up in southern california in a re- relatively conservative area which was fine it was a great place to grow up for many reasons but it was also very difficult to grow up there as a non-white person and i think because of that there were a lot of anxieties and pressures that i felt and felt like i needed to succeed in certain ways yep. in order to get respect and a lot of that's it's not going to come through academic work because of course the stereotype of asian americans in in the 80s was simply that they're nerds uh, mm-hmm. a lot of it had to do with unfortunately the the film 16 candles there was a, one exchange chinese exchange student there who perpetuated that that kind of stereotype and so I felt the only way to succeed was through sports. As a result of that, I became very serious. I took myself very seriously whenever yep. I did something athletic, which was good because I excelled, but it was also very bad because if you end up taking yourself too seriously, it becomes tragic in many ways. And so when I met this, my friend Steve, uh, Steve Edwards, he was an exceptional athlete in almost every way. He could just, he excelled. At just about everything except one area of water sports, he was terrible at water sports, whether it was swimming or surfing or something. He just couldn't do it, and he stayed away from the water. But he was an exceptional uh, uh, ball handler in terms of playing baseball and football and those kind of conven- and basketball, those conventional American sports. He was a, he was a great rock climber. And the great thing about Steve is he loved adventure, but never took himself seriously. So he had mm-hmm. this great balance of being to being able to excel and have fun with it. And I've never seen someone have fun with taking something so seriously as I've seen Steve do in many different situations. And because of that, he was also a fantastic leader. He was the kind of leader that was very patient and gracious, was always there with you. He was going to go through things with you and try to work things out and was always able to maintain a kind of grace under pressure. Not always, obviously, he's human, but most of the times I saw him I, I, under situations where I would just snap or lose it, he was he would be able to remain quite calm and try to work something out. So he he and I, uh, he in the video store, and we got along very well, and we had this uh, one summer where I had to make up credits at the University of uh, California, Santa Barbara, since I was doing, I initially went to school there. So I took a summer course in film. And I, I didn't have a place to live. And he said, he was living in his video store. He said, hey, just come live with me. And um, you, can, <laughs> you can work and that way you can get paid and then you can go to your class. And so uh, the, there was a great story. I think there was one moment which actually kicked off something special within that climbing community. And I went to my first lecture on film and it was this guest lecturer from Northwestern University. And he started talking about the golden age of Hollywood and he said, so we're going to, you've seen the films we're going to watch this summer quarter. And a lot of you may be upset that there is a musical on the syllabus. And he paused and you know, students were like, I can't believe we got to watch a musical. Why do we got, there's nothing interesting about a musical. Hmm. And he said, so Singing in the Rain is probably the best musical in the history of film. And he gave a short history of it. And uh, he said, you will be amazed and stunned not only at the acrobatics and the choreography of the dancing, this and the the quality of singing, but the plot itself is a satire on Hollywood. And then suddenly all the students kind of perked up. And then the day he uh, he we actually had the screening, he was really animated and he rolled it. So well, I watched this film and then the, one of the first scenes of of dancing is Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor doing this vaudeville show, mm. and it it was absolutely mind blowing. I don't know if you've seen it, but I walked away from that film and I went back to the video store and I said, Steve have you seen singing in the rain? And he looked at me and he said, 
that's a you know, said fantastic movie. You popped it into the to the video player, the VCR as it was back then. And then so what what we started doing is he started we started watching musicals with Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire as much as we could. So he would order all these films to be sent to the video store. And then the uh, climb for some reason, you know, of all the things in the world, musical and dancing guys would walk in and think, what the hell is going on? And <laughs> but the climbing community got into it. And, uh, and it was this way of cultivating creativeness and excelling at what you're doing at the same time. And um, it was that kind of ethos. So anyway, long story short, well, maybe it's not so short, but um, we also did a summer f- a film noir. We got into that and we decided that we had a pretty good idea for a script and so we we wrote that we did all this research um, on a lot of different stories having to do with LA and film noir, and we wrote a script. And and Steve had a very good friend from climbing as well who was just making it big in the film industry. And he, uh, I I don't think you'll mind if I mention his name. His name is Alan Edward Bell, and he was learning. He was an apprentice under Rob Reiner, and learned mm-hmm. how to edit films. And one of his first films he was assistant editor on was Misery. And he slowly built up a reputation and his credentials. And he, I, he, he's now retired from Hollywood, but one of his most recent blockbuster edits was um, The Hunger Games or one of The Hunger Games or something wow. like that. But he also did 500 Days of Summer, which is a nice, cute little film. Anyway, so we took the script to Alan Bell, met him in LA. And Steve and I said, if Alan agrees to cut the film, we'll make the film. And Alan, it was over some martinis at Musso and Frank's. Of course, you have to be at Musso and Frank's in Hollywood. And uh, he just said, yeah, you cut it or you film it, I'll cut it. So we got everything together. We uh, we filmed it on 16 millimeter film, uh, which is very expensive. And also, yeah, it's not like video filming where you can just say cut and redo it. When you're filming on film, you're, you're actually burning the stock. You're burning mm-hmm. the money. Whereas with digital, you have endless amounts of of, of retakes as it were. So, and we, and we, we took all the equipment, we went out to Britain and for some reason, I don't know why we decided to film it in Britain. So we filmed it in Britain and had the film developed locally. I think it was Metro color. I don't think they're still in business, but they were right across from the old arsenal uh, football stadium. Mm. And uh, yeah, that was it. So we came back. Uh, uh, it's another story I won't go into. The Alan Bell did cut it. The film is uh, unique, it has a unique sense of humor, but it is, it's called Icarus Descending and Bob Banks, a friend of mine has put it up on Vimeo. So I think if you search Icarus Descending, you might be able to find, find oh, it on Vimeo. Wonderful. But I warn your listeners, it is definitely a very peculiar sense of humor and there, you can definitely tell it's an amateur film, but uh, uh, Alan Bell said he, he's, uh, he didn't like the film at first, but he started to later on when he had established himself, he would include clips of that film on his reel to show to uh, potential, um, you know, job projects, or whatever. So uh, I guess that's a claim to fame in some way. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, well, definitely we'll put that, put the link in the uh, the blog of that. Cause I think that's, and I've seen it and it's, um, it's, there's, there's a couple of things there really, because there's the, the output of course, which is the film and how it's received, but the, just the sheer amount of organization and prep and um, work that must have gone into developing, designing, and then organizing and then completing such a massive project. I think everyone's thought, oh yeah, I'd love to do a movie. <laughs> everyone's got a book in them. Everyone thinks they can do a movie. But to actually do it, you must just be something you're so proud of, you know, when you look back on that time now. Yeah, it was probably about 80% Steve doing the organization and leadership and 20% me. I, I basically wrote the script. Steve made some edits. Um, I was in the film. I'm not a very good actor, so there's another warning. But we were also very fortunate because we had a connection with Philip Akeborn that we got all the contacts on the British side to do to, to do the acting. And so Philip is the main character. He plays Hayden K. Laurie. And then you will see some people you might recognize from British serials. Uh, there is uh, Sam, who plays, I can't remember for the life of me, I can't remember his last name, his surname, so forgive me for that. But he was in Silent Witness. I think he played the coroner's assistant. No and, and Robert Mukherjee, uh, Sam Parks. And Robert Mukherjee, who's he's an act, trained as an actor. He went to RADA, but he was mostly a writer for the BBC, and he did a lot of projects for the bbc but robert mukherjee plays one of the detectives in it so it's got it's great to see all these different people coming together but it it was definitely mostly steve organizing uh, wow handling a lot of stress 
So, so where we are so far in your story is that you've you've you're uh, you've done the poetry, and you love it. You've discovered musicals to the point that you decided to make your own movie, and then you've done an international film. <laughs> 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 That's where we are so far. So, you've done the international film, and uh, what happens next? So, you're sort of are you thinking right? This is the life, you know. We're going to be film writers, film stars. This is where we're going. Kind of what what happens when, or was it always kind of a side project that you were kind of thinking there was something else like what what where were you at that point yes steve and i were definitely hopeful that something would happen and perhaps i was a bit more naive about it and was thinking that there was a possibility that something could come out of it or another screenwriting project or something of that nature and especially when you're with steve you always have this openness or availability to fortune because steve himself was very fortunate except when he contracted cancer, that was sort of the main tragedy of his life. But when you're with Steve, the, the funny thing is you're in this, uh, your own sense of time. Things happen when you're with him, and they're often very enlightening and very enriching experiences. And so I think I was under that spell, as it were, thinking you know, everything else I've done with Steve has just been fantastic. So why should this be an exception? Well, it still was fantastic, but it just didn't play out the way we had hoped. And after a year or two, we just sort of we wrote another screenplay together. Uh, about the the red cars in Los Angeles and based a detective story around that. I still have that script. And then we actually, we wrote some of the scripts too. And uh, those are all filed away somewhere. But eventually Steve and I went our separate ways. We always remained in contact and would see each other every now and then. But eventually I ended up in Britain and Steve ended up in Salt Lake City. And he became huge in the uh, American fitness scene. He was one of the co-creators of, I forgot what it's called now. It's Beachbody's 90X or X90 or whatever it okay. was. And that became a huge hit. And I think at the headquarters in, of Beachbody in Los Angeles, they have some kind of dedication to Steve. Uh, it's a statue or something like that. But wow. uh, <laughs> but he, he, you know, he was exceptional. In the climbing community itself, he was, he was huge. He wasn't, he wasn't the best climber, but he, was certainly a, a prominent figure within the climbing community in the United States. So, there's, uh, there's, yeah, there's so much I'm pulling from. I mean, it's, I mean, talking about Steve, he sounds like an amazing guy, and it's, it's uh, so sad about his his passing. And I'm, I'm, you know, obviously, sound really, really close to him, and it's such a tra tragedy. But there's the way you're kind of talking about him. It feels like he's this. People talk about sort of graceful leadership, or you know, exciting energizing you know kind of feel like the center of the storm that kind of suck people in and it just sounds like everything you're talking about is almost is is he almost embodied um leadership lessons that maybe he didn't weren't ever taught but he just personified and he just like you say he wasn't the best but he just things like you said good things happen when you're around him so it sounds like he was an amazing sort of person um and he sounded like he had an amazing impact on, on your life and your sort of creative endeavors up to that point Yes, to the point where when I encounter bad forms or what I call bad forms of leadership. So I guess Steve's, obviously I encountered forms of leadership prior to that, but Steve's was so distinct and remarkable and so resourceful. It was a, he had a, he had a definite practical wisdom about him. And when you, when you see that in action and you're actually subject to it in a way that you're relying upon the person in the leadership role to get through something, whether it's a bad incident in climbing or whatever it might be then that's a different experience of leadership. And then it's something you come to expect of people who see themselves or say they are great leaders. And that's not necessarily the case. And to this day, I don't think I've ever encountered anyone of the quality of leadership I've seen in Steve. And it, it can be from the range of the very profound moments in life where you need someone to take control because no one else can, to the very trivial moments where you see someone's character shine through. So one memorable experience to show how cool-headed he was and how he took things uh, with a pinch of salt. We were, it was during the World Cup 1998. We're in Santa Barbara. And of course, uh, Santa Barbara, for some reason, has a fantastic football culture or soccer culture, as it were. And we were walking across the street to go to a different bar to watch one of the, the matches. And um, it, there were some angry drunks around, some louts, as it were. And this beefcake-type guy came across and saw us walking across. And some for some reason, just looked at Steve and obviously wanted to fight him. And, and the guy comes up and gets in Steve's face. And he says, where do you think you're going? 
And Steve looked at him and he kind of chuckled and he said, I'm walking across the street. And he said it in a way that totally disarmed the person. So it wasn't confrontational, like, hey, I'm walking across the street, get out of my way. It was, mm. it was this, this humor he had that wasn't directed. It wasn't making fun of the guy, although it kind of was. And it just totally disarmed him. And the guy just said, huh? And he just totally dumbfounded. And then we kept on walking. <laughs> but it was just moments like that where so you see someone keep their cool and is able to just sit back and take all the, the, the contextual factors in and give an appropriate response and just move on. That was it. Done with it. Let's go do our thing. That was it. It was, it was an amazing, he's, yeah, he was an amazing person. And I tried to remember the positive aspects about him um, and try and imitate him when I can, but me being me, I'm nothing like Steve. So it's, it's almost a sham if I try to do it that way. Yeah. We're all like, we've all got our own. I'm sure if Steve was around, he'd be saying exactly the same sort of nice things about you as well. Because <laughs> there's always, there's always synergy and power and partnerships, isn't there? It's never, you know, whether we could have done the film without you or, you know, it's, you know, who, who will ever know, but I think it probably worked. There's always synergies and everyone always sees something in the other, you know? So I think there's, that sounds brilliant. So yeah, big, big, big shout out to Steve, you know, um, sounds yeah. like an amazing guy and we'll certainly sort of remember him, remember him when we're watching, watching the video <laughs> on Vimo at, at, at a later time. Um, so you, the film, the film doesn't quite work out. You did, you've done the kind of creative thing. And then what happens next? So you said you ended up working in, was it uh, adjusting? Yeah, claims adjusting for a year with a big company. And then when I moved to the Midwest, I worked for another insurance company that ended up getting bought out by Royal and Sun Alliance, a uh, UK firm. And yeah, that that shaped my perceptions of what I thought work should be as opposed to what it was. And yeah, I still draw on a lot of those experiences in my own consultation and research. And in a way, so yeah, soul destroying, but glad I did it. Maybe if you would have asked me, at the time, especially when I was working for Royal and Sun Alliance, I would have said, no, get me out of here. And eventually that did happen because I, I, after a year of doing that job, I did something entirely different. I managed a rock climbing gym and then went back to insurance in a different capacity, which was not adjusting. And then after that, I went to the UK to do my PhD. Yeah, because I think every heroic story has always got a segment where the hero does ends up somewhere <laughs> doing something they don't want to do. <laughs> yeah. It's in every, every story. So just to spend a bit of time on there, what, what, cause it, that seems like the thing you've been pushing from ever since. So yes. can you just give us a bit of an insight into, you know, what was it like? What was the culture like? How did it work? Just a kind of a few tidbits. And I think if we can understand what you're pushing from, then it, everything else that you've done since then, which is amazing kind of we can see that in context so would you mind just sharing a bit about it might be a bit of a painful memory but just having a look back at the how, how it was what 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 was work like in those areas because we can kind of people can kind of imagine you know cubicles and everyone's seen the american movies where everyone's shouting at each other and it's all stressful and pressurized but what was it like working in those um sorts of businesses and that and during that time when you were there yeah so chubb and son was the the big prestigious insurance for my work for in San Francisco. And they had celebrities as insureds, Ronald Reagan, uh, Bill Clinton was insured by them. Starbucks was one of their big accounts when it first became big. And the there were good and bad parts of the corporate culture. There was the litigation supervisor. He was old school, pretty funny Filipino guy. And he had a very light touch, obviously good at what he did, otherwise he wouldn't be in his position, but very understated. So he was always nice to be around. The other adjusters were fine. The everyone was supportive, but there was definitely kind of a feeling that adjusters were out for themselves so they could progress in their career. And Chubb was a typical corporation of the of its time where the marketing meetings were all about growth, growth, growth. And I just thought, wait, you can't just grow forever. Isn't there something called smart growth where you grow in a sustainable way? Mm-hmm. And you know, that's just a hunch I had in the back of my head. And of course, Years later, I come across this idea. It can't just be about growth, and because that growth will become inimical at some point or counterproductive. And the experience I had of Chubb, it was very stressful in many ways, and there was expectations how you would perform. And I remember leaving, it was one of the, my first week there, and I was leaving at five o'clock when I was supposed to leave. I was going down the elevator in the tower, and the one of the senior adjusters was there and I thought he was leaving for the day, but he was just going out for a break. And he looked at me, he said, going home. 
I said, yes. And he said, he just said short timer and then left the elevator. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to stay well past five o'clock and into the evening. And I just thought, okay, I'm not going to be here much longer. And so that was my experience of, of corporate culture in America. And then when I did the other insurance adjusting job, it was almost the opposite. The company was so disorganized and the lines, the, the insurance lines it dealt with were the opposite end of the spectrum. So they were dealing, it was a high-risk auto subsidiary of Royal and Sun Alliance that only insured high-risk people. And high-risk people were usually, and they probably still check it this way, is people with hardly any credit because there's some statistical correlation be- between people with low credit and them being poor drivers. So you can imagine the insurance claims I would get were uh, you know, people who were not very good at communicating. They were often involved in I don't know, dodgy situations, very hard to do the investigation. And uh, there are a lot of problems with the company I probably can't go into, but it was this whole opposite experience. The caseload for that company was insane. And, you know, coming to your cubicle in the morning and your voicemail is full, full of people wanting money because they've been in an auto accident with your insured or whatever it might be. And then at one point I just said, I got to leave. And I went part-time and tried to do other things. I tried to establish my my reputation as a writer, which I'm still trying to do to this day, oddly. And then I thought, I can't even do part-time because I'm I'm still getting full-time work caseloads. And trying to do on a part-time uh, hourly, com- weekly commitments is is nuts. And so I went to the, the my I went to my team supervisor and I said, you know, Tom, I sorry, I, I gotta quit. I can't do this anymore. And Tom looked at me and he said, okay, hold on one second. And he left and he went to the claims manager. And then after a few minutes, Tom came back and said, yeah, well, let's go talk to, I think his name was Dale. I don't remember. So I went to his office and claims manager said, okay, Todd, Tom's filled me in on what you want to do. Just hold on for a moment. I picture this part-time work, full-time salary. And I just thought, I was about to say yes. I was like, wow, that's great. And I and I just thought, nope, that's the devil talking, metaphorically speaking. And I said, nope, I said, I'm sorry. I don't mean to insult anybody, but I have to leave. I'm done. And that was it. And then, um, yeah, so all those experiences about the insane workload, uh, you know, just remember, I remember, I think one of the things that helped me convince myself to leave was I saw that film called Office Space and uh, realized that parody of The Office was in many ways my life. And that I, I shouldn't be living this life anymore. So I went back and I quit. Wow. So that's lots of people fantasize about doing what you did. <laughs> <laughs> and you've done it. So it feels like what I'm getting so far from speaking to you is that you're very happy to walk your own path. You know, you're very sort of, you you, you have a higher sense, you know, a higher sense of purpose, which is, you know, really, when you see, when you, when you watch and see people who are doing that, it, it kind of feels like they know they've got a plan in place and they know what's going on. So is that how you felt? Or did, were, you, were you very much kind of like you weren't sure what was next, but you just knew this wasn't the route you wanted to go down? I, I think it's a combination of both. I I am purpose-driven, and I think I've been that way ever since I was a kid. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of existentialism appealed to me throughout my academic career in different ways. And Because ex- existentialism, if your readers aren't familiar or your listeners aren't familiar with it, uh, is develops this notion of the project and what an authentic project means. Not so it's not just any project. You just don't come up with a goal and say I'm going to be the wealthiest person, you know, whatever it might be. It's critically thinking about the kinds of values you want to commit your life to. And you know, Camus, Albert Camus, who's uh, not really a philosopher but more of a of, of an author, but he has this great saying in one of his essays. He said, "A reason for living is a reason for dying." He just leaves it at that. As many existentialisms. Existentialist philosophers tend to be quite ambiguous about what they say. But when you think, when I saw that, I thought, that's interesting. Any reason I commit to, basically, I'm saying I'm committing my life to that, and that's a reason for dying. And then I thought, do I want to commit my life to this? Maybe this is a good litmus test. And it is in many ways. Uh, and sometimes you have to take it with a grain of salt. Sometimes you invoke that test at critical moments in your life. And so that's how I, t- I tend to be oriented. And the other way, in which I tend to be oriented, I think most people are, as they think of themselves in terms of the project of self-improvement and for trying to set goals, whether it's in athletics or your personal career, to to move towards and 
and see if you can do it in the right way as opposed to a vicious way where you hurt other people or you alienate other people. So yeah, that's definitely on my radar or I like to think of myself. That's, that's how I live my life. That's fantastic. So, so moving that there's a, a seamless transition there into moving to talk about philosophy. So from there, you then move uh, into doing a PhD in, in uh, did you say philosophy in the history of work? Was it? Philosophy, basically philosophy of meaningful work. Philosophy of meaningful works. That's fascinating. So can you just give us just the listeners a bit of a description of what that means and what, what kind of, what kind of topics you cover on there? Yeah, so the PhD was something quite different from where I am now, not in terms of I disagreed with I, what I did in my PhD, but the PhD had a very specific angle into the question, which I won't bore your listeners with. But where, where I stand now, and I sort of distilled into what I have now in my consultation. So a lot of people say, well, meaningful work is about finding your work self-fulfilling and these kinds of things. And, and that's more or less right, but there are certain problems that arise with that. And one of them is that it's not just how you feel as a person about it, because you might be deceived about what's good for you. You might think your work is good for you, but actually something might be problematic or constraining your life in some way that you're not aware of. So the way I like to step back, I like to say that meaningful work is about developing persons, not developing you just as an employee. So it's, and the way this occurs is through what I like to adopt is called the capabilities approach, which is, uh, basically been developed by a prize, Nobel Prize winning economist named Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum, who's a philosopher, a very famous philosopher. And then another philosopher is not really related to either of them directly, uh, but a French philosopher named Paul Ricoeur develops capabilities in a very different way. So the way I like to focus on it is the way to make yourself a better person is for the workplace to develop capabilities, not just to make you a better employee, but the idea is that you find capabilities that overlap with what you need to do at work, as well as what is valuable in life. And once you have that intersection or that overlap, then you're becoming a more capable person. So it, it would be a sad case if we we spend our the majority of life at work, and you're just being better at you know developing yourself at being better as an adjuster and as an accountant. There's got to be ways in which any work whatsoever can somehow cross over or overlap with these essential capabilities, which allow us to live what Aristotle would call a flourishing life. And so my whole consultation is finding ways in which businesses and individuals can identify those capabilities, why they find it meaningful to their life, and how that can be integrated in the work. And so when that happens, there's kind of a flip-flop that occurs. We're no longer uh, living in order to work, we're working in order to live. So work becomes part of the flourishing life. It contributes to it. Where, whereas before, work might be dominating your life in a bad way. It might be draining you of your your vitality and your happiness. So that's fascinating. So could you just give us some examples of what, what when you say the capability approach, what, what when you say capabilities, can you give us some examples of what that might be? Yeah, so let, one of my favorite capabilities and this is sort of the crowning capability on my view, is the capability to imagine. But there's all sorts of capabilities. And Martha Nissbaum comes up with a list of core capabilities. And the, the idea is that the list is open. There's, there's no set list and this is it. There's no one size fits all. The core capabilities are just things that seem to be fundamental to human life and the human condition. But that might change over time. So uh, one core capability is bodily movement. So if you're constrained in bodily movement anyway, whether your work does it or it's political oppression, that hinders you as you're as a capable per, capable person. One of the things I like about the capability to imagine is that imagination fills a lot of functions. Two of them are the ability to imagine things as they are not, so kind of in a good way, a fantasy and, or a fiction. Uh, there is a critical function to the imagination. So when you can imagine your condition or the state of the world in a different situation, that provides a story or background against which you can critically analyze where you are now. So one of the key ways in which imagination works is, with respect to work, is being able to see yourself in a career vocation other than you're in what, other than you're at now. So this is really key and important for those areas of uh, society or a class within society that have traditionally been constrained according to certain roles. So if it's just typically working class, not that there's anything wrong with that, but if someone is told that they can only be that, 
and nothing else, that's going to hinder their capability to imagine. So if they can imagine themselves as being something different, for example, a cliche, I can be a doctor or maybe, God forbid, a politician, whatever it might be, then uh, once they start to imagine that, then then the doors doors start to open. Then it's a question of, okay, I can imagine that, but then how do I get there? And I remember speaking to you earlier on my podcast when I was interviewing you, uh, I asked you, what's one of the takeaways or what's one of the pearls of wisdom you can offer? And you talked about the way in which you got to get out there, believe in yourself, but then the key is just to take those small steps. And no matter what, no matter how hard you think it is, just take those small steps to the place where you think you want to be. And once you do enough of those, you'll see you've built up enough momentum that it can become productive. And so imagination is like that. It's the the first step, being able to imagine yourself in a new situation yeah, in order to be there. That's so fascinating. And it's, it really resonates with me because I remember one of the things I, I do a lot of work around is equality, diversity, inclusion. We, we call it EDI in the, in the UK, but it's called other things across the world. But often it's one of the things we're looking at is why in sort of public bodies like the government and the NHS and, you know, the police, why there are so few um, ethnic diverse diversity. It's all tends to be mainly white and mainly men. But all the opportunities are... You know, the opportunities are there and the career progression is there. And so from a structural point of view, you think, well, they're all there. So why is it not working? But actually it comes back to your ability to imagine. And when I've interviewed people and asked them, it's because they sort of say, I never thought I could do that. I've never seen a, a black hospital CEO, for example, or I've never seen a black police commissioner. And so I, or an Asian police commissioner. So I don't, it's not that I can't, I can't do it. I just never even thought, it was possible and so it's almost that as you say that ability to imagine is shut down and so i'll just as a follow-up question to that and i'm going to start interrogating you <laughs> so follow up to it is that is there is it the role of work then to help people become aware of what might be possible for them almost yes like universities and schools but of course that closed you, know, you leave university and school when you're quite young you spend a lot of time at work so is the future of work an organization's almost role or a requirement to its employees, the people it's, that's under its care, to almost continue to provide these opportunities to imagine? Is is that what, you, what you're kind of driving towards at the moment? Yes, I'm absolutely committed to that idea. One way to think about it is if we want to talk about work as a culture, the workplace as a culture, you got to be, how do you mean culture? Because culture is philosophically, it's a rich word. And it goes back to the German Bildung and its emergence, its prominence in the history of the West is a moment during the Enlightenment when self-edification on the broadest spectrum is one of the concerns about society and civilization. It's to be as well-educated and informed as you possibly can in order that you can be a more capable citizen. So this, this underwrites the whole liberal arts education tradition within the United States. And although liberal arts is not as big of a thing in the UK, there is still the liberal arts tradition looking at the humanities. So if we take the idea of work culture, we can't just be parasitic on the original meaning of it. We have to take it very seriously. What do we mean by culture? Well, in its first iteration, cult work culture was all about making employees better at what they do, more efficient. And then it was about finding those aspects which did overlap with being more human. So finding safe psychological spaces, realizing what the psychological contracts were in addition to the to the job contracts that we have. But then there's other opportunities that workplaces can provide. And it can provide very direct engagements that help people increase their ability to imagine, not only in terms of their career progression, uh, whether that be mentorship or providing some kind of vocational training and education that helps to enhance their perspective and skills, but also indirectly. And this is, so I I, I'm, I'm, I agree entirely with what I just mentioned with the direct methods, but I think a lot, what I like to think about is the indirect methods. So I have this whole philosophical theory that comes from speech act theory. I won't go into it, but one of the things that organizations and businesses can do is understand the imaginative effects of roles and duties within the workplace. And once they get a grasp of what, so imaginative effects would be those things that aren't necessarily intended by the work that we do, but they happen. And when they happen, they're eye-opening. So a real simple example, if I'm a rideshare driver driving for Uber, and I kind of like giving people a lift and taking them to where, where they're going, 
one of the imaginative effects is that I become more aware of driving safely. I know this might not be the case when you see some Uber drivers out there, but mm -hmm. um, certainly when I was, I did my share of ride sharing for a limo service. And one of the things I became very cognizant of is suddenly when I'm in this role, I become a different driver. And this made me more aware of different behaviors on the road that I knew about, but I didn't really think about. And when I was in this role of limo driving, I had this quality of patience that I normally don't have as a personal driver when I'm driving myself around. And so this is an imaginative effect of that particular work. And if a business organization can identify these things that go on, and this can only happen if they engage with their employees, then these are the things that can be cultivated in different ways. It can be cultivated very simply in terms of creating a forum in which employees can talk about certain things. If they're very significant imaginative effects, then employees can be encouraged to follow them up in certain ways, maybe in the direction of some kind of social responsibility initiative, such that it helps just not only the employee explore this particular area, but it helps other people outside the business. And as Many experts will tell you, once you have this element of social responsibility behind a business, employees become more loyal or dedicated to the work they're doing because they realize that the work they're doing contributes to something more than just the bottom line. So that's an example of how the imaginative effects can be cultivated within a workplace. And I think it's very much possible. I've, I've seen it happen in my own consultation work, and it just takes the right leadership and the right business model and the right people in place who are in charge of organizational design and development to get things rolling. And I like to say it helps to have an external consultant, not just because that's what I do, but it helps to have that outside perspective to help shake, shake things up, provide a level of objectivity that might not necessarily exist if things were done internally. Yeah, and I, t I totally agree with that. So <clears throat> as, a, as an OD person myself, I'm often advocating getting in external people in because if you're part of the system, how do you help? You're, you're part of the system so you'll have blind spots and areas you don't see because you're part of the the infrastructure already so it's that kind of willingness to oh so i think consultants and external people coming in is 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 always needed because they see things other people don't see and that 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 power that superpower <laughs> that people have and they'll be able to feed that back can be can be eye-opening to people because they just they don't know what they don't know and they can't see what they can't see. So I, I think the the external consultant is for me is only going to become more powerful. And yes, you can get there if you do it internally, but it just takes longer, it takes much longer than having an external person. I think that's absolutely right for you know multinationals or you know small businesses that having someone who's external to come in and support uh is can can just be transformational sometimes. Um so yeah, so just on that, on that, um, when you talked about employees' culture being and making employees better at what they do, so is is that is there this kind of switch now where in the old days, you know, or the you know previous or last century now? Oh my God, I feel old saying that. Previous century, <laughs> it was very much around, you know, you come to work and like, you know you're in a cubicle, you do the work, and then you go. Is the future of work then to me meaningful work? Is almost the, the workplace is almost focused on not actually on the business if that makes sense but they're almost focused on growing the people who join the business and then the people who do the business will then look after the business is that kind of where we're going so it's you kind of see some of the big companies do days where they go and paint a hospital or they go and you know redo a park or they do something which is for the community because it's it's something that's different from their work, but kind of binds them back in again. I don't know what, what's your kind of thoughts on that or whether that's like a new topian that we may never get to, because if no one's worried about the bottom line, then organizations will cease to exist anyway, because there's no one focused on the customer or the, the person that the business is there to provide for. Yeah, I think there's absolutely a right balance to what you described. I think it's absolutely key for businesses to think about how their employees engage with the business or their, how they relate to the business in terms of their own identity and how their own identity is channeled through the business identity. So social responsibility initiatives where maybe the workers spend one day a week, or maybe that's too much, maybe one day every two weeks doing some volunteer work at the hospital or at the senior center, whatever it might be, or it might even be in uh, um, adult education, if they always wanted to be an archaeologist, for example, they could do a class there. But 
once there's that kind of external tie to something else outside of the work as to what really matters in the employee's life, then the business identity becomes constitutional of or helps to comprise one's own personal identity. And that's where the real loyalty comes in. And there's going to be a give and take between the two, obviously. But the idea is that once you have this balance, you get more dedication to doing what the employee is doing on a daily basis. So the idea is that there's got to be some kind of reminders and constraints about what matters to the business. That's absolutely the case. But then it's not just, it's not a zero-sum game where volunteer work or social responsibility work takes away from the bottom line. It actually adds back into it. And it's just finding that right balance to do so. I think there's there's two approaches that are are going on right now. They're not totally exclusive to one another, but one is the four-day work week, which was uh, it's still very prominent and popularized by Andrew Barnes, who's one of the main CEOs behind it, and it's been tried in Scandinavia and so forth with to great ex- uh, success. And the reason why that works is basically employees are asked if you can do all your work within four days, get paid the same amount, and not work over your eight-hour day, you find a way to do it. We'll commit to it. And so that's like ultra-focused work. And that's one way of going about employees finding the work related to something more than work because they have more time to spend with their life. Um, nothing against the four-day work week, but the other thing I like to think about is a more well-rounded work culture and workplace, which draws a lot of different things into the business itself as part of its identity, as opposed to telling your workers, just get just hit the targets, hit it in less time, but get paid full salary and we all we can all go on our way. Um, two different approaches, but I prefer the the latter approach because I think it's more robust intellectually, philosophically, emotionally, psychologically, and um, helps to lead a more flourishing life. And um, I th- I think with the Great Resignation, I know uh, momentum has sort of waned with that. Four point two million people quit their jobs and. Uh, November of 2022, and now there's a lot of studies to show they regret this. I don't think that's I don't think that's contradicting that initial impulse. I think it was a cry. It's like yes, work is bad. We now have a situation where we can actually quit because we're getting some support from the government. If you're in the UK or in the United States, and the, I guess there was a kind of a hope that employers will get the message, change their work culture. Of course, things don't move that fast, and I think we're still there. I think we're at a moment where. Although people are regretting having to do that because they have to return to the workplace, I, I, I don't think it's going to resolve anything. I think those, as it were, ill feelings or experiences are still there. They're going to need to be addressed. And I think what we're going to find is there's going to be a higher level of turnover in positions because people are just going to be moving from job to job until they can find what they want. Yeah. They find an employer they like. Yeah, and I think you can see that in sort of the... The, the press and things that are out there, this this focus at the moment about this, you know, it, I don't think people are calling it a war for talent anymore, but that very much around how to attract and retention being the, the big the big buzzword at the moment. How do you bring the best people in and then hold on to them? You know, how do you you do that? And I think that's a a big a big challenge that I think everyone's grappling with at the moment. Um, but the bit the, the next thing I'd like to talk to you about because I know you've you've done a lot of work on this is around um the sort of blockchain technology and the ai that you've been working on because those are two sort of you know groundbreaking game-changing pieces of technology and it's someone who's with your background and everything else and then philosophy and then when i hear all the work you've been doing on that as well it feels how, how can you just give us a flavor of how you got into those fields and what kind of what attracted you to, to it and what what are you doing in those areas because they're still sort of relatively new sort of areas that people are, are still learning about and becoming aware of. Yeah, so blockchain's sort of taken a backseat given the state of the macro economy, but it's probably going to start coming back as more signs move towards um, a soft landing of in, in the U.S. at least of having to do with recession. But the you know, I sort of related to AI, I did philosophy of technology, so I've always sort of had a foot in on that. But the blockchain is entirely different. And although you might have AI applications on the blockchain, but the blockchain, uh, initially, I was very skeptical of, and uh, it was only through a colleague of mine that we had this critical discussion. And he asked me to do some consultation work with him because although he was a professor, is a professor of philosophy, he was also the chief investment officer for his own crypto hedge fund. And so he had me working in the capacity of project manager, researcher, and writer. And I'm still working with him now. I, I just helped co-author a, financially, a, a, a weekly financial newsletter for his followers. 
but it was essentially the idea of the blockchain is I, a lot of Americans and libertarians like to refer to the blockchain as financial freedom. And I think that's, I think that's a misnomer. I like to think about what the blockchain can do in terms, in terms of financial empowerment. That's not to say all of it is good. There are a lot of Ponzi schemes out there. There's a lot of scams. But where my colleague and I like to differentiate is that you, where you find blockchain platforms that provide real utility, that is real use for people, as opposed to mere speculative investments, then you're going to get those blockchain applications which will last. And Ethereum is a good example of that. It's a major network that has different applications which provide real use for its users. So I'm still interested in that. It's, it's a young and volatile area, but we'll see what happens as that progresses. AI has obviously come to dominate headlines everywhere, whether it's on the stock market or in terms of uh, what's going to happen with a dystopian future. But I'm currently working as, it's not a big part, it's not like an engineer or coder, but I'm working as a real-life human feedback person where I help companies better train their chatbots. There are different ways in which their generative AI chatbots get trained, one's through interpolation and prediction of text, and there's other training methods that go on so they can help hone that down. There's a real famous article by Ted Chang on interpolation and how AI is limited, and he gives an analogy of it of a, a blurry image, and that, that's what the generative bot draws from instead of an exact image or replica but it's a long story it's a good article there there are critics to it um so i've been looking into that area of research and mainly within my own interest in meaningful work what is ai going to do in terms of the future of work and um what we can expect so i have some speculations and thoughts on those but um, nothing nothing super groundbreaking at this point well that's fascinating because it just feels that kind of as i you know listen to the, the the journey you've just described you know you've gone from everything seemed to have a very imaginative and creative edge to it you know all the way through that you talked about you know we're going to come and talk to you a bit about philosophy to, to you in a second but it feels that, that 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 kind of imagination and that looking to the next thing it feels that it's i, I can just see it through the, the whole journey so is that something that has really sort of attracted you to as you um, move into the next phase of what you're doing now and and would you mind just giving a bit of a flavor about what you do for in philosophy to you and what your uh you know what kind of thing you do in terms of uh, the clients you work with and the services you offer yeah it's an interesting question because i'm you know, i'm not quite clear myself on how i'm relating to things i see in the offing a lot of ways in a lot of ways i'm kind of shy about moving into or maybe shy is not the right word but maybe reticent moving into certain areas and I think a lot of it has to do with, I'm not quite sure the right way to enter into um, a given field or territory. So with AI, it really came at the prompting of the colleague I work with who um, started, we started discussing certain things on our weekly chats and one of them had to do with, hey, there's a way to create your own chat bot. Uh, and so I, I, he said, here's a, here's a video I came across that is quite good. And so I started looking at the video. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to try and create my own AI chat bot. So I did that and I put it up on philosophy to you. It's limited because uh, it's, it's connected to an AI stack, but because I'm not paying for that, uh, I think I get one AI stack question per month. Otherwise I have to pay like 200 or $400 a month. But the way the AI chat bot works is if you ask it a question about meaningful work, it'll pull from my website and, and draft an appropriate response uh, and so Philosophy T is the website and my consultation company, and it's basically all focused on meaningful work. So it aims to be the premier public resource for meaningful work, whether it's interviews, courses, we're both uh, free and paid, consultations, there's blogs. And then, as you know, there's a monthly newsletter called the Meaningful Work Newsletter that's basically run by Philosophy T U. So anything having to do with meaningful work, I want Philosophy T U to be the center uh, as a source of information education and consultation and ai has a role in that and i just to say something about ai and, and meaningful work there's one question which has to do with how will ai change the face of work that's one separate trajectory the other question for me which i'm more interested in is can ai help you find or create meaningful work and my answer to that so far well my answer to that given generative ai's current iteration is no it can't and there are very specific reasons for that because meaningful work involves a bespoke process. And that bespoke process, key to that, is engaging with another human 
who can explore issues and relationships with you. AI can't really do that. It can only pull from existing data on the internet, for example, in order to answer a question. And typically it's quite general in, in its suggestions. And if it's a good AI, chat, AI chatbot, one of its suggestions will always be talk to an expert, <laughs> which means mm. a human expert, so. Yeah, that's fascinating because the whole, when I see, you know, there's so many AI things out there now, you know, create, I don't know, videos or music or pictures or, you know, write a book in sort of 30 seconds kind of thing. It feels that the, for me, looking at that, it all sounds brilliant. And in, in one way you look at it and you think, well, that's how the rich and famous have always had it. They've always been able to say to someone, go away and write me a paper on this or go and research this or go and find that, find this out for me. So in many ways, it feels some some ways it feels to me that it's it's very equal now. Everyone has that ability to have someone almost working for them, like before only the rich and famous or, or the the very wealthy have been able to do. But on the other hand, the, the worry for me slightly is that there's very much this race to the end. So you know, write me a blog article, and you can you know write one in thirty seconds, or write me um, whatever you want to write, especially using things like Chat GPT. But the the thing that seems to be missing there is the journey to get to where you are. So it's very easy to write. You could write, you know, write me a blog about meaningful work, go, and it will write you something. But actually, if that's all it is, then it, it feels to me like it's hollow. It's like you've, the journey is the, the journey is the outcome. And whether you, but I can't tell whether that's just me being old fashioned and being, you know, people said the same thing about the internet <laughs> it was first invented, you know, all those kinds of things. So I, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on how people are using it, because some people are saying that, you know, they, you saw these things, they, they, they take coding jobs and then they just basically put all their coding problems into an AI and it gives them the answers and they're all working remotely and they just stick it in and it, it works. But again, it feels that if you're doing that, then what is your purpose? You know, are you, you can only cheat the system for so long before you start to feel like you are cheating the system and all this you know all the things that mean anything they mean something because you've had to work for them so yeah so easy to get a black belt and just put it around you but if you've been working towards that black belt for 10 years in the martial art then when you get that black belt it means something because you've gone through the process so i don't know whether that's that's how that resonates with you have you got any thoughts on that that absolutely resonates with me. And let me begin with something that Ted Chang mentions in his article about ChatGPT is a blurry JPEG or image. I think that's more or less the title of it. If, if listeners haven't read that, it's it's online. It's uh, originally published in The New Yorker. It was back in February of this year. Fantastic article. Again, he has his critics, so it's not a fully agreed account of, of generative AI at this point. But one of the things that Ted Chang mentions is that you can very much easily just obviously, as educators know, be a student and say, write me an essay on this. And then write me now, take that essay and put it in a tone more that's equivalent to a 10th grade or 16-year-old student as opposed to a 21-year-old university student. And you can just ladder prompt things to change the way it, it looks. And then you can't detect this with plagiarism software because generative AI, the way it works and interpolates and predicts text, it won't take an exact copy of something. So, but Ted Chang notes that if students do this, they may be meeting specific targets about writing an essay and then getting a grade for it, but then they're losing on the capability to go back to that term, to be able to think for themselves and articulate their ideas in writing. And as most people know who love writing, writing is not something you just regurgitate and that's it, you're done. Writing itself is a process of thinking things out. And that's why mm -hmm. sentences will have a wonky syntax or grammar because you begin a sentence one way, you change your thoughts slightly, which becomes a different sentence. And so you have two different sentences, which don't make sense, but then you can see the thought process change in that artifact or relic. So you lose on, on that capability. And so you become less capable as a human. Uh, if you think you no longer need that capability as to be human, then that's a different argument. The way I like to think about it is with any technological process, you often get what's called a replacement of first order operations with a second or third order operation. So in the instance of essay writing, I don't really know, I don't really need to know what an introductory paragraph is, what a thesis statement is. I don't need to know what exposition is. I don't need to know what justification is. I don't need to know what critical analysis and argumentation is. 
I can simply just know the second order or third order process of operations of inputting a prompt request into a generative AI chatbot to say, write me an argumentative essay about whether or not Descartes was a solipsist or something like that. And so you lose that first order capability of being able to write a thesis statement for yourself, but you don't need it because all you need to do is be able to know how to request that from a chatbot. Most technological, advanced technological processes are like that. You replace one order of operations with another. And I like to see it as you're replacing one kind of capability with another, which may be good, which may be bad. But the lesson often is it will come at a cost or it comes at costs that we don't often anticipate until later. They don't manifest until later. So there's that worry. The other thing I just want to say in relation to your example about the journey is and the limitation of generative AI is that because it's pulling from an existing database or um, representation of information, it can only really articulate thoughts that have been articulated before. So you lose that capacity for innovation and insight. It can suggest the conditions under which those things might occur. So for example, if I'm looking for a career change, it'll suggest deep, uh, think really deeply about what you like to do but it can never take you through that process of identifying what it is you like to do in an intimate way that another human interlocutor can. So you lose you lose on that process of creativity, innovation, and insight because it's only pulling from what's already out there. And that's another reason why I don't think journalism is going to be replaced by generative AI because journalism is all about reporting on new things. And well, not all of it, but most of it. So it can't really replace journalism unless it's just going to produce articles reiterate things that are already on there. So those are the limitations of AI and how I, I'm agreeing with you about how it it hampers the development of our capabilities. Yeah, that's fascinating. So it feels like AI is reserved rather than brand new. <laughs> yes, that's right. But, and that might change. That there, you know, yeah. might take that quantum leap. I don't know, but in its current iteration, that's certainly not the case. Wow. If, you know, if, if um, so my whole, I, I, I'm pretty sure my whole thought about capabilities and meaningful work is new. There's something called capacity building. That's entirely different. Um, that's a different question. But the whole application of capabilities approach to meaningful work is more or less, you know, I'm not the only one. There's because capabilities is talked about in a lot of ways. But my approach in terms of using speech acts and hermeneutics and capabilities and meaningful work is new. Now, if you put that into chat GPT and said, Tell me a, a novel theory about meaningful work that pulls on speech acts, hermeneutics. It's not, you know, it's just not going to be able to do it. It doesn't have that critical capacity to link complex theories and concepts together. It can only just basically predict, uh, you know, given these words, what's what should come next in my response, mm -hmm. and so appear like it's a human interlocutor. So it, it's it's now it's prediction. It's not an innovation and creativity yet. That is fascinating. Yeah, that is, that's so fascinating because I think people are. Yeah, the way you've explained it, I think, makes it really clear to me. So I've certainly learned something today. So thank you very much for that. Sure. Um, I mean, we're drawing towards our, our time now, Todd, because I'm, I'm really sort of grateful for the time you've given us so far. So just in sort of coming to close, um, can you just give us a uh, maybe a couple of points that you're, you like our listeners to take away from, from this topic? Um, something, some maybe pearls of wisdom that you'd like to share? And also, maybe just tell us a bit more about what your future plans for philosophy to you and how people can get in contact with you going forward. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I, I don't know if it's pearls of wisdom, but I, I really wish or hope that people who are in places where they can make a difference within the work culture, whether it's a manager, a director, or an employee who can be proactive within their own business organization, seriously think about the relationship between one's work and how one's life flourishes. The old school of thinking is work is simply a necessary evil we have to do. Then we retire. But of course, the irony is that when we retire, we've already wasted half to three quarters of our life. Uh, a newer way of thinking about it is that work somehow becomes tolerable and contributes a little bit to how we live our life. But the new way of thinking about it, I think, ought to be something like work becomes a key component to a flourishing life. And that's going to require a lot of change and transformation in how we think about business and culture. But I think it's possible. And I think the seeds have been sown where uh, multiple seeds have been sown where that can come about. One is the great resignation, losing momentum, but I think it's going to come back. And another is I think AI, the proliferation of AI is going to actually help in some oblique way 
It's going to help emphasize the importance of meaningfulness in the work we do. And so I hope that's a way of killing two birds with one stone, as it were, if hopefully that's not an offensive way of putting that, but um, that's where I'm focusing with philosophy to you to really try to bring about the role and understanding of capabilities in the workplace so it can benefit both work and one's own personal life. And so that's the direction I'm headed. And if any of your listeners are interested just to have a chat, please do reach out. I'm more than happy to have an informal discussion about it. Or if you think I can do your business or your life well, I've worked with a lot of clients to help make necessary changes. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Todd. And it's um, it feels in this day and age, the, the, the age-old questions of philosophy are needed more now than maybe ever before. Um, and I think people could learn so much just from, rather than trying to grapple with every new this situation by themselves, to understand that every generation since the dawn of time has grappled with these exact questions there's a lot of wisdom uh hidden in philosophy books that maybe people aren't reaching out or accessing at this point so i strongly encourage everyone to get involved with philosophy in general but um i highly encourage you get in touch with todd and have that discussion with him but todd thank you so much for today it's been brilliant to speak to you and i look forward to seeing you again very soon thank you joe thank you for having me it's been a pleasure